Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. matter of a lot of the photography is this end of the spectrum and um, Gareth's been in journalism and has chaired events before so he's a he's an old pro really so we'll hand over to him that's a lie <laughs> haven't done this for a very long time good evening everybody thank you for coming people sit down it's like story time at school isn't it it's lovely everybody <laughs> sit down around and I'm going to tell you a lovely story Yes, tonight we're going to put on our rose-tinted spectacles and we're going to head off to visit some social housing estates to snap some photographs with our hipster analogue cameras. Oh dear, what's that going on over there? Oh, somebody's coming out of their house and telling us to bugger off. They don't want us sticking our lenses in where they're not wanted. And I think that kind of highlights the sort of dichotomy, the contrast that you have of the um, in the sort of sexy image of photography and the Instagrammability of a lot of post-war social housing developments and then the actual lived experience of uh, being in them. And I've encountered this uh, on many occasions. I've been chased off Golden Lane Estate when I was photographing it for building design and people screaming at me across the grounds. And um, I don't know if you know, there's a set of amazing brutalist towers up in, up in Aberdeen that are really beautiful. Um, and I, they got listed a couple of years ago and I put something on social media saying how pleased I was and then torrent of residents all telling me how wrong I was about that and what an awful place they were to live in. So there we go. <laughs> so tonight we're going to be talking about how post-war urban social housing became demonised as a failure in the 70s and the 80s particularly, sort of politically, socially driven. Um, but then how specifically certain developments have become rehabilitated over the last 15, 20 years. Uh, and at the same time, other ones have been dynamited. What are the qualities about these good ones that we celebrate? Um, I want to find out whether it's just a London phenomenon or is it something that really sort of stretches its tentacles throughout the UK. Obviously, you've got like Sheffield Park Hill that's a high profile at the moment. And also, are we as design professionals um, too focused on the Instagram aesthetic of the shuttered concrete and the lovely way that light falls across uh, <laughs> some lovely bits of concrete um, rather than the day-to-day -day experience of um, actually living uh, in these places? And are, is this superficiality uh, preventing us from having a more sort of engaged um, kind of analysis of these houses? So as he said, I live in um, ex-local authority house in Deptford. I also was a social housing tenant in Islington um, in a tower that uh, will be uh, resonant later this evening. Um, 
and I really do appreciate the qualities of social housing and especially the space standards and the, uh, the materials that were employed back in the day. Uh, the, what, the house I live in now was finished in 1980, so it's one of the last gasps before um, Thatcherism shut down the social housing programme at the time. But even so, at such a late stage, it's still a really uh, beautiful development and um, was designed by a planner who really believed in creating uh, great uh, environments uh, in, cities, in city settings. Okay, so I'm going to shut up now. Sorry about that. Um, I'm going to introduce our speakers tonight very, very briefly. I'm going to start with, now I might get your surname wrong, sorry, because I've got, there's lots of ag- accents on it. <laughs> Yemi, is it? Uh, Aladrin. Hello. Yemi uh, works for Meridian Water. She's an architect and development manager. Is that correct? I've taken all this off the interwebs. Uh, working in the housing sector, your senior development manager at Meridian Water which is a huge £6 billion 20-year regeneration programme in Upper Edmonton. Good. 20% of the way there. Okay, we're now on to uh, Ruth Blees-Luxemburg, very famous photographer. Raise your hand, please, Ruth. Hey, there she is. <laughs> uh, she's a German-born photographer based in uh, the East, well, Shoreditchy area these days, and she is very well known for her nighttime photography of urban landscapes. Um, and for us mere mortals, we will know the most famously, uh, it's a long time ago now, but the cover of the Streets album from, was it 95? Yes, was taken by Root. And um, I was saying that that's Kestrel House on City Road, and I lived in Peregrine House, which is the uh, very similar tower next door. And it was an amazing place to live. Albert Hill, over here on the left, raise your hand, Albert. He is co-founder of The Modern House. Uh, There's not much more to add to that, really. I think you're an accomplished journalist as well. And um, obviously, Modern House has expanded to become quite a huge international lifestyle brand as well as a state agency, isn't it? And then we have Rosalind Peebles. Where's Rosalind? Hello. Uh, From Open City. Uh, Rosalind is an architect. And she has been a tour guide for the charity Open City since 2018. I got this off your profile. I hope that's correct. And finally, the last 20% is Charlotte Ginsburg. Hi, Charlotte. Charlotte is a London-based filmmaker who creates films that interweave documentary, fictional and performative elements to explore people's psychological relationship to their jobs and working environmental environment, architectural environments. And she lives in a housing co-op Sounds very glamorous, actually. On the, on the river in Rotherhithe, I'm very jealous of <laughs> Charlotte's house. So let's kick off. I'm going to start with Ruth, actually, if we may. And if people have kind of like a strong opinion they wish to express, just raise your hand. We've got roving mics um, and people can chip in. So I want to ask, because a lot of your photography kind of has that resonance with social housing and uh, the sort of a dystopian view of it. Do you ha- what experience do you have of kind of like urban social housing uh, and how much has it played a role in your work, would you say? So um, I photographed uh, what I call Towering Inferno in 1995. It became the image for the Streets album. And uh, it was the 16th floor. I took the image from the 16th floor of the social housing high-rise, and we had a gallery in it. So one of the social tenants let us use his space as a gallery. And that really uh, enforces my idea that the social housing estate is also a place of 
creativity. Things can happen there. I live on the 18th floor on another estate now, and so I'm very much aware of that. And when I photographed the, the, this image, I thought again, this is a place of potential. And I use the night time, so the lights are on, but the people are not visible. This is not a story about individuals. This is not a soap opera about people living in these houses. This is a story about a system, a structure. And what does this structure enable? So that's what I wanted to um, interrogate with my images. And I think with that one in particular, it worked. And so the guy who did the streets, he recognized things happen here. I feel that energy, I see that energy in the lights and, you know, um, pirate radio, music, things happen here. And at the same time in the 90s, still the social um, housing, the estate, the high rise was very much demonized, a place for um, miscreants, um, marginalized people. The British press, the tabloids always had horror stories about what's going on there. And for me, as coming from Germany, from a country which has embraced modernism, I felt it more like a homecoming. I recognized something there. So I felt, okay, I didn't have those hang-ups which were very strong in Britain at that time. And something else I want to mention, which I think is also perhaps a bit on um, off-site, off but I think it's interesting. There's this... Um, film critic called Laura Mulvey, British film critic, and she wrote about heights in movies. What do heights, or being high up in a movie, what does that uh, symbolize? And she made this very interesting relationship between deviant sexuality and height. And so when you look at a movie like uh, Towering Inferno, the couple who have an illicit affair, they are on the top of the high rise. So that connection, between what's on the ground is wholesome and good, and what's at the top is weird and deviant. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I might just say that puts a whole new spin on Mary, Mungo and Midge, though, doesn't it, really? What were they up to? Um, I just want to ask then, so in terms of photography, uh, what role do you think that's had in kind of rehabilitating the image of urban uh, high-density housing? I mean, that would be wonderful to take some credit for that. Um, <laughs> Yes, but why not? And again... Uh, <laughs> you do it. Uh, but it's not just uh, me, it's also how the image got distributed and how it had a visibility beyond the gallery and beyond the art world and reached a much broader uh, demographic where teenagers had the image on their wall and then r related to this image in a different way. And uh, using the night time again, uh, that kind of illumination is so suggestive and immersive. So it's not about the hard, gritty reality, but about an idea, a possibility, a towards. Okay, yeah. No, um, so I want to move over to Albert now. I'm going to give you my microphone in a minute. So talking about the kind of rehabilitation uh, of social housing, uh, can you It'd be interesting to find out from you why, I mean, obviously, modern houses really put modernism on the map for um, architects, but also the wider public in terms of selling houses. Um, what made social housing become more fashionable, do you think, over the last 10 or so years? Uh, and do you see it as being mainly a London phenomenon? Um, is on? Slide it up. 
Hello. Yeah, that's a bit better. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, first of all, I was just going to say to your point, uh, I suffer from vertigo, so I never go above the fifth floor of a building. So that means I'm wholesome. So I'm very, uh, I'm very pleased of that reading. Um, but um, I mean, it's just down to quality, really, and quality of design. And I think that um, it, the, the quality will rise to the top and people will seek it out. Um, it took a long time for people to seek it out, I think, in terms of uh, of the housing. But that's what drove prices. And I think your other part of the question, which is, is it just London? Um, uh, I think that's obviously where the design industries are focused. So that's where the people that are looking for design are most. So that's obviously... Um, where a lot of it is, but there's a lot of fantastic design outside of London. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I was going to ask quite that actually, been discovered yet. Yeah, was, is is it mainly because the innovation is focused in certain London boroughs, um, just the culture of the architectural departments at the time, or yes, do you see it everywhere? Because there's a lot of bad developments as well. I presume that aren't popular and don't you know people. No, but sell. you do obviously see things all across the country, but not as mm. much of concentration as in London. Yeah. yeah. I'm well, thinking of one in Bracknell, for instance. Right, okay. <laughs> That's very nice. Glamorous destination. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to add there, I used to live on the 16th floor of Peregrine House, so I think that makes me a deviant. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yemi, so uh, following on from that, um, with your experience of contemporary social housing, there's a big social, uh, sort of social and affordable element, isn't there, at, um, in Upper Edmonton. Uh, it's really, um, do you see that there is a, that, the qualities that we see in post-war social housing, is that lacking now, would you say? And what can we learn from those um, projects, you know, from 60, 50, 60 years ago? Yeah, I think, I think it, the local authorities are, are now um, building again. And I think as, the, as an architect, yes, it's noble to work in the public sector, but housing has become sexy <laughs> now, as you said. I don't remember anyone at my time coming out of uni and wanting to do housing. You wanted to do the civic, the grand, the arts and the crafts, um, the things that would get your name up in lights, not boring housing. Um, I think the resurgence of housing is great and is positive, but we can find ourselves in a trap when we're focusing on the product rather than the need and the use and the purpose. Um, and without empowering residents and the residents and co-creating, co-authoring communities where people can thrive and prosper, we fail because all we're doing is providing shelter and that's the absolute kind of minimum goal. Um, I remember, I think, in my mid-20s working in practice on one of high-end, really beautiful homes in um, listed and conservation buildings and also in the context of being more aware of inequalities in housing and becoming uneasy about why you could always spot the social housing blocks. They're usually the dentist's blocks, zero public realm and um, badly maintained. And when I went to visit friends and family, it was, um, apart from why does it look like that, it was, why does it smell like that? Why is everything falling apart? Why do I feel unsafe? So now that must be a wider attitude. It's almost like people have been conditioned to think down upon social housing rather than elevated kind of attitude. So I think then going 
back when I was designing and thinking, well, why are we not designing social housing to that level of care? And why is it that you have the most disadvantaged people living in those circumstances? So I wanted to understand the setup there and how we could do better. So what can we all do to change the system, to improve the product? Um, and I think for me at that time, it was all about the product now the um, after moving client side and transitioning um, to working with local authorities and housing associations, um, the product, I'm absolutely focused that the product is just the beginning when we talk about good housing. And actually it's about the people and it's changing. But my first experience client side was that I was the only architect employed um, and I wasn't employed as an architect. Um, I was focused on project delivery. We were delivering housing, but there was nobody that was pushing design before I started. So the core service um, was not about beautification of the product. It was about providing the product, maintain it, deal with um, customers and, and maintain it. And that's still the core of what um, a lot of local authorities do. So the function in that setup is more important than the form. Um, and the kind of internal battles I guess I've been having um, when my design-led blood pressure rising in, in certain circumstances um, is that is it not better to have X hundred homes that um, deliver homes for um, people that are warm, safe housing than the scheme is award-winning and is pushing whatever milestone that we're trying to reach but do you look back and see kind of like post-war there was this kind of really quite a lot of experimentation and innovation and very interesting sort of housing topographies and plans and layouts and you know you see sort of see that sort of Neve mm. Brown's work in um in, yes. in North London and things um and so my sort of leading question is do you think sort of private developers have been very focused on the bottom line for a long time and kind of minimum you know maximum yeah. profit um how do we change that attitude when it comes to social housing and you know, are we kind of like embedded with that idea now and it's quite mm. hard to break from i think um a lot of it will has got to come from regulation and it sad to, to say that but i do also think that it's always going to be the local authorities the housing uh, and housing associations those with a long-term interest in the in the product that they're building and in the homes that are building and have a, a this core um central purpose of stewardship that will drive um kind of that bigger picture and giving more than just the the basic standards because we do look at building regulations as if they're maximum standards but no they're the absolute minimum of what we should be um delivering and i suppose one of the lessons of post-war social housing is that you should you know it's that long-term investment and maintenance as well isn't it uh i'm moving over to rosalind now wave your hand again where are there we are hello <laughs> uh so um just want to ask really you work on with tours for open city um and i think it's quite interesting and i'd just like to get your perspective on this that on the one hand you're kind of taking people around uh, with their cameras snapping projects but you're also providing an insight into um the the, the places that they're visiting and i just wonder how how you manage that process and make sure that it's not just kind of like goldfish being looked at in a bowl or 
animals in a zoo sort of thing. It's more 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 constructive than that. Well, yeah, no, 100%. I mean, actually, you know, we start all our tours kind of saying, you know, you know, we're looking at housing. These are these are people's homes, and we, we kind of really put an emphasis on being sensitive as we kind of move around these spaces. Um, you know, and certainly taking photos. You know, Aidan, who's here with me, who creates the tours with me. You know, we we really think through where we kind of stop, where we introduce thing. You know, subjects where where we talk, um, so that we're not kind of standing in front of people's doorways, or you have someone you know kind of taking photos through people's curtains. You know, that kind of. Before. We have. A couple of times, there are a couple of, um, it's, it's usually the same two um, estates and actually we've, we've removed them um, from our tours. And another thing that we've tried to do over the years is um, we've really kind of, I think, sort of developed how, how we do the tours, but is, is get residents involved. So I saw Eddie in the corner. <laughs> Eddie uh, is, a, is, a, is a resident of, um, oh my Lord, Dawson's Heights, <laughs> sorry, brain freeze. Um, and, and Eddie joins in on, on some of our tours. And, and that's really important because, in a sense, like, for us, it's all about, you know, content. We believe that, you know, housing and, and social housing, you know, is, is really important. And it is going through this, this, this reappraisal. So, you know, we try and provide kind of a rounded picture because, actually, it's not, you know, good architecture. Sort of, it, it's a combination of a number of things. It's not just some genius architect. It's actually, it's this policy. It's the, it's the kind of political context. It's the sort of post-war ambition and the willpower to really want to build, um, you know, build something better for everyone. Um, so we can kind of provide that side. But what's really important is also getting residents involved because it's not my lived experience. I don't, I don't live there. I can provide the kind of the historical content and the architectural critique, but it's, it's not my home. So, I, you know, it's really important that those voices are included and therefore, you know, that hopefully starts to break down some of the kind of, you know, any sort of voyeurism, you know, and, and to in, include residents in the conversation. And on certain estates, you know, some are obviously being celebrated, some are still under threat. So, you know, we, we include Central Hill and we've, you know, got involved with residents in their campaign to sort of save their homes. Yeah, so do you find it's, I mean, is it quite a challenge to involve residents i mean obviously you have like architects who have bought flats in you know <laughs> and they're very keen to show what they've done you know they've stripped out all the asbestos and made a beautiful sort of open plan interior but in terms of a, a broader and also the people who come on the tours what's that demographic like and how do you and how engaged are they with the lived experience rather than just wanting to have access to take photos of the light falling across ribbed concrete yeah so i think um so so the first bit in, t in terms of residents it's obviously um ends up you know residents who are really proud and in, you know and enjoy their homes they they tend to be the ones who want want to get involved also you know it's their saturday morning they might not want to do it every time and we really try and space things out so that we're not sort of badgering people you know try and include them in a way that works for them um and what was the second part of that question oh demographic so we actually started doing them for the Architecture Foundation and, you know, that was very much more kind of like an arch, you know, very much a sort of focus on the architecture. Um, and what's actually really nice about doing it for open cities, you get a much broader demographic of people um, and from all different backgrounds. Um, and it's really nice to be able to discuss because a lot of these conversations happen between professionals you know, or, or people involved. So actually opening that conversation up, and, and I think actually part of the language you use is really important in doing that and sort of making this subject matter more accessible for everyone. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, with open houses, a much broader, broader kind of spectrum of people. But I mean, it tends to be a sort of slightly left-leaning crowd who are um, all for uh, social housing. Yeah, so. sure. Do you ever get people on who are very anti it and think it's um, they come to cause trouble or? Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's happened yet. Has right, it? No, not really. Let's no. not make this happen. No, I'm not. I'm not suggesting <laughs> that we make that happen. Uh, so, talk about lived experience. We want to move to. Charlotte now and just ask because um, you obviously have the lived experience of living in a housing co-op and then you've uh, during lockdown you worked on uh, a documentary film project of featuring the residents where you live uh, and I just wanted to ask you about that lived experience and how important you feel that is when um, in terms of how you capture and depict um, social housing developments um so a lot's coming up that's really interesting and relevant. Um, I do have lived experience of a housing cooperative. It's where I live. It's not a tower block. It's five, five, four stories. It's on the river. It is the, the people living there are not necessarily privileged, but it's an incredibly beautiful, stunning building. So I think there's a few... I guess I want to start with a few words that are coming up in the room. Um... I think safety is a really important word for lived experience and how that might link to architectural design. I feel really, this is my home and it's a completely, the other word that's coming up a lot is ownership and how do we own and inhabit a space? And I think the idea of looking out from a space or looking at it is really important. So I guess the film I've just made, which is about the community I live in, is us looking out from our building at the world rather than people looking into the building. Um, so they're just sort of general comments, I guess. But in terms of social housing, I think there is just such a huge need, clearly, for quality housing. Um, and I'm actually not that sold on tower blocks. <laughs> I think there is something about the way our building is designed that is absolutely functions so well. And it's about the empty in-between spaces. It's about sight lines to each other. It's about enabling spaces where we can witness each other. It's about communal spaces. So we have a laundrette room in the building. So we all have to meet because we're doing our washing. Yeah. And then we have a, I mean, again, we are privileged in that we have a roof terrace that looks onto the Thames but it's shared so it's about the architectural functioning to kind of reinforce and enable differences within communities to coexist we argue there's problems um, but I think the architecture is continually reinforcing and enabling a sense of community and it's a really diverse demographic living there um, it's not a, house, a big housing estate. So I also think there's something to do with scale that's really important. We all own that building together. We're all shareholders. You buy a share for a pound when you go in. You can't make any profit out of it. And when you leave, you sell. You, you, you give your share back and you get a pound back. And once you take market value out of something and you're not obsessing about redoing your floor and taking wonderful pictures of it and Instagramming it to everyone... I don't sit at dinner parties discussing how I've converted my front room, you know, and it's quite a relief sometimes. But what we do have is a kind of 
I guess I'm going around in circles here, but something about the quality of housing, it's just incredibly well built. And that becomes a sense of um, pride and a sense of safety and a sense of shared space. And I think something really interesting, Root, you were saying about creative space, because it does enable people to find a space to be creative. And that might be through, not in the ways that we're maybe conventionally thinking about creativity. So, yeah. When I, when I lived in a the very big tower, 26 stories, I think it was, but that had over 200 apartments in. Um, but there was a really amazing sense of community in that block and a lot. It was a very diverse population as well, and I think that made it a very interesting place to live. But um, Islington had invested in having a caretaker who would make sure everything, you know, the lifts were mopped out every hour and um, parcels could be left at the front desk. And so it's like a concierge. It was almost like living in a lovely private development. Um, but it was quite an amazing place to live and it just showed the value of maintenance yeah. and care I think and management is really very important um, I just want to ask the room actually um, how how many of you if any are social tenants probably very few nobody <laughs> if we'd have asked that question I don't know I mean with a professional audience possibly it might have stayed low but I imagine if we'd asked that question 40 years ago it would have been a slightly different answer 50 years ago um, who lives in ex-local authority accommodation? I'm sure this is going to be more. Okay, keep your hands raised. So who out of those would you say consider yourselves to be to live in a design-led ex-local authority? So we're talking about ones that might end up on the Modern House website. Not, not, not empty council, but just social housing. Mediumly good. Oh, okay, fine, fine, sure. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to... Uh, well, that's sort of, I don't know who wants to answer this one, but really the qualities, what people really admire about the qualities of post-war social housing and, um, what, and ones that we think could be uh, kind of really incorporated into uh, new build. Aha. That's very kind. Yes, yeah, people, it was quite a, like the locals with pitchforks when we went down there. Yeah, so I live in Golden Lane, and as I said, you're very welcome to come and photograph it. But I think the particular qualities of it are that it's beautifully designed, there's very good public spaces, but also health is at the heart of it. So there's a public swimming pool, there's a health centre. So it's one of the few estates designed post-war on the basis that it should be a healthy environment. However, what's gone wrong is it has almost no insulation, and it's a place where it costs a lot to heat it and because it's also a listed building um, you can't just clad the whole thing with a new so, so there's a real contradiction between the need to retain the design and its heritage qualities uh, and any attempt to move towards some kind of net zero policy yeah, that's interesting anybody else who has that sort of experience oh that's handy <laughs> One um, yeah I live on Weedington Road Estate which is near Gospel Oak Station and um I think maybe the amount of kind of access that people have to outside space. So all of the rooms, despite being like multi-story, it's all low rise, but um, you've got access to an outside space that you can like stand outside from and there's balconies and big communal gardens. And it doesn't, I think, yeah, how, how much green space you have compared to being in private housing at the moment is massive and then also, the the way that a lot of those spaces can be reconfigured. Nearly all of the, I think, post-war housing where it's built with concrete, nearly 
all of the internal walls aren't load-bearing, so you can actually really easily reconfigure um, those spaces and in terms of having different residents move in and out of them. Um, I think they, they really suit actually being flexible to different people moving in. Proper flexibility. That's something that's been talked about in housing for a long time. Uh, sorry, Albert, yes. Uh, do you want to start that one? Oh. Thank you, Yemi. Um, I was just going to pick up on a point that um, I think a couple of people touched on and was, was on, the, uh, on the description of what the talk was about. It said something like, how can we move towards a future where housing um, is avant-garde again? Or something along those lines. I don't know who wrote it. but um, And I think that's a really interesting question as to whether we want social housing to be a place of avant-garde design. Um, because, you know, we, have, we saw in the so-called golden age that it was where the, you know, we obviously want the greatest minds of architecture to be involved in that area. You know, that's, that's one argument on one hand. And on the other hand, you know, do we want the residents to be guinea pigs for, you know, architects' grand schemes and visions? And we've seen it go both ways, you know. You've seen fantastic estates crumble to the ground because the architect's fancy vision hadn't worked, but you've also seen it go the other way that these kind of amazing futuristic views have been, you know, played out to work wonderfully well. There is that kind of... Um Failure. I mean, I think Robin Hood Gardens is an interesting one because um, I've always, I've never, I don't know if anybody's ever been into any of the flats at Robin Hood Gardens, but obviously it's become quite an iconic, brutalist, you know, hard to love, but very sort of epic looking project. But I think probably residents, it, it's, it was, it's always been a bit of a failure in terms of the residents living in it and um, you know, big arguments to preserve it, what you can do to change it. But I, 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 I do, you know, there is that idealisation, I think, also of a lot of these things. And we look at, the, we do look through rose-tinted glasses. Um, I wanted to ask how many people go and photograph buildings like this for Instagram and don't be shy, I do, <laughs> frequently. Uh, and so maybe you could hear what motivates you to do that. And do you kind of, I'm looking at you now because you stuck your hand up. Uh, and there's a microphone nearby, so you've, there's no escape really. Um, what motivates you to do that? And do you try and, is it a very superficial activity for you, would you say? Thank God I said a silly thing. Um, <laughs> it's on. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I'm an architect and uh, I, uh, for the last couple of years I've been working on social housing. So I feel like I have everything to learn. So I love to go with my amazing friends, um, make a day out of it. Why not see some other parts of London? Um, and by the way, I want to say we were talking today in the office about um, the Balfront Tower refurbishment. And I think it's quite on topic. Um, and a colleague used to work for uh, Egret West Studio, so he gave us a really insightful uh, uh, short presentation about the project and then asked us a question, which was, what do you think about the tenure change? Because a, a project like that might not be any more suitable for social rent, um, but it's obviously been sold uh, some private sale and you know probably that kind of money allowed better social rent elsewhere. So it's a very contentious question, but um, we work in Alexandra Road and our sustainability manager chipped in and said, if we could relocate the tenants properly, refurbish it and give them proper social housing suitable for their current needs, 
that would maybe be better, even if some people don't like to hear this kind of Yeah, thing. well, I think it's those questions of, we'd I mean, be interested in gentrification, obviously that could be a topic that we could all talk about all night. Uh, but also, I mean, I used to live near the South Acton estate, which is, uh, it was a, I remember a friend of mine who worked for the Metropolitan Police, not very good advert there, um, but said it was really a no-go zone. The police wouldn't even go into the South Acton estate. It's a huge estate because it was so dangerous. Uh, and they've been redeveloping that now for about the last 10 years, I think, or so, 12 years. And um, But the number, they decanted loads and loads of social housing tenants and far fewer moved back in. And a lot of it was then handed over to private tenure to fund the project, I suppose. I was going to ask Yemi, actually, in terms of the uh, tenures that uh, in your development and how that shapes up in terms of uh, the, the, the business case for the whole project? So, um, funding is an issue. <laughs> and um, I think the cross-subsidy model we have at the moment just doesn't work. And there's a realisation that it doesn't um, work. But until um, we get back to, and actually we probably will never get back to, to the levels of funding we saw coming through from from government, um, then uh, what it does mean for large um, developments and even smaller developments actually is that you do need that mix of um, tenure. Um, I used to work for a housing association where it was a small local led housing association in um, Islington and Shoreditch, and we had a, a um, go at doing private sale and um, you had there four homes that were going for upwards of a million pounds in, in Hackney and there was real backlash there from, from our residents and there was um, a directive that came back from board saying that we just can't do it. It doesn't fit, fit our missions and purpose so then what we ended up doing as an organisation is stopping at kind of intermediate shared ownership which still allowed us to, to build some of the uh, social rent units, but then meant that we can compete um, with other organisations that were able to buy the land. And it all starts from when you, you're able to buy the land or not buy the land. At Enfield, it's really, really exciting on Meridian Water because we own a lot of the land and then we've um, bought a lot of the land but there's still uh, to develop something of that scale and when we talk also about mixed communities it's really important that we're not building kind of silos we want real communities where people can mix and interact with with each other so it's for us also important from that perspective that we're not just building um, within the master plan not just building singular tenures and do you see lessons there from post-war housing and um, the successes and failures of you know, especially bigger projects, sort of like Streets in the Sky, Park Hill, and um, Peeps Estate, and things like that. Absolutely, I and I think it's for where we want to go uh, as a society, and actually changing the perception of um, uh, social housing, affordable housing, and who it's for. I think it's imperative that actually we are. Um, ensuring that we're integrating the homes that we're building for um, social rent, affordable rent, intermediate rent within the wider master plan of um, kind of private sale, pri private rented homes as well. Oh, sorry, there we go. Um, do, I mean... Gareth, sorry. I Hello. just wanted... Yeah, sorry. Sorry, yes. I didn't see you there. Sorry. I just wanted to challenge Albert from the Modern House on his previous comment. 
I mean, where would we be without this avant-garde architecture? Where would modern house be without those avant-garde? Yes, yes. But don't you think we should, I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if the government, the councils could drop the money on these brilliant architects to build again in this visionary way as they did in the post-war area? Wouldn't you love social housing built by Herzog de Meuron or some of those well, yeah, architects? Uh, well, of course, yes, yes, no, absolutely. No, you don't? Okay, who doesn't? But, you know. I think, I mean, is this on? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a huge thing. Like, it was an amazing era, the 60s, 70s, and onwards, in terms of what was actually built. But that was, and it was, we should look back on it with pride. Amazing buildings were built, a lot of money was spent, and it was one of the biggest house building eras of our country, which we're now trying to replicate. A lot of experimentation, a lot of testing on some of the most vulnerable people in society was done. And actually, there's nothing wrong with doing a good level of ordinary housing. And I'm not saying that that means we should set our sights low. I'm just saying we shouldn't use these people for social housing for experimentation. We should be, there should be a good level of quality. Sorry. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I, uh, sorry. Come on, Reed. Slide that slider. I, I don't quite understand what you mean with experimentation. So, so, <laughs> so I don't think we need Herzog and Demuran housing in this country. That <laughs> Other architects are available. No, it's, 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 not, it's not about it's not it just being what? not British. And I don't think we should close our doors to say only British people can design British housing, because that's another thing altogether um, and I don't agree with that either um, and I think there's lots of lessons to learn from how we all live but I don't think you know some of some of the biggest issues with the social housing from that era is that there were you know you put there some of the first generation that got put in high-rise you know is that the right I think high-rise is right for some people it's not right for all people um, we experimented with kind of deck access there were just lots of things that we tried and tested that i don't think needed to be experimental which i think is part of what's led to it being stigmatized over time as kind of it's gone on and the other side of it is that it hasn't been maintained and so it's all kind of fallen into disrepair but um anyway thank you that's great uh, steve you want to chip in yeah absolutely i i don't get the experimental thing at all um i'm sorry um most of the housing that you said was the golden age is is across Europe is post-war need to actually build so much housing for um, what at the time was a baby boom. You know, it was an incredible increase in population. It was a basic need. And that golden period where you have architects like Basil Spence and um, who um, did Coventry Cathedral, as well as some tower blocks in south of Glasgow and the Gorbals and other tower blocks elsewhere, as an example of that golden period where they're ripped down. And they're ripped down because of not experimentation or failing uh, mixer, mixture of tenure and so on. It's to do with deeper set social issues and possibly the ghettoization, perhaps, um, which is usually um, a product of how they deal with the landscape around it, in my view. If you go to Roehampton, Alton Estate and so on, you will see greening and trees planted in a way in the kind of European French model of, of social housing, which is brilliant and it works. 
Whereas the quite often a lot of the, the, the kind of common ground and common place tends to be ignored, even even with the states just now. Um, I, I, and, and, you know, I've been up to Edmonton recently, Yemi, and I've seen what's happening around Edmonton Towers. And, um, you know, those are tough towers with the market down below. Tough problems to deal with, but there was a kind of aspiration to try and get something active at the ground, which kind of worked. And it's kind of still there after, you know, 50 years of quite poor quality housing. And there's attempts to sort of try and improve that public realm at the moment, which is, you know, partly succeeding, partly failing. But at least there's attempts. And I think, uh, uh, you know, I would like to pose a question to anybody who wants to pick it up is, is, is about this um, perhaps lack of sense of place or sense of common ground at the ground level in the landscape area around these estates. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that hopefully someone will pick up on. And I just want to, sorry, yeah, no. I, I wanted to also add to that the, the role of photography and image making in driving perceptions and how that might be helping to rehabilitate uh, social housing. But also, um, I think it's, I mean, great that we'll speak to you again next because it's that kind of photography from the inside looking out is the rarity most people are kind of very surface focused and then you have um people like richard billingham whose series raise a laugh is um really famous piece of documentary photography where he lived in a tower with his parents and um they're really quite gritty images uh and then walks over photographer i know rob clayton who was brought up on a wolverhampton housing estate photographed the blocks there as well and it's a very different perspective it certainly doesn't glamorize it in the same way anyway sorry i just wonder what what would you like to say no i think it's um i just wondered around this word social housing and whether there's something in the semantics of this anyway that surely all housing is social so you know it's this idea that there's this separation that because you don't own something it's and you're in this social realm and it's also this notioning of othering we're othering sections and this again comes back to the idea of mixed tenure and, and how we create a community through architectural space. And I think what you're talking about, Steve, where we meet the ground is, is really key. You know, the interaction from the street and the public realm into, the, into what is the foyer area. Like what happens when you move through that front space? Where does private and public stop and start? And this only seems to be really focused on around social housing. You know, it seems to be linked to social housing we're not just talking about housing, and I think that's an issue as well. But, but just quickly picking up on that point about, you know, um, the avant-garde and the aesthetic, and uh, again, we, I think it's really important we are all human beings appreciating aesthetic, coming from very different perspectives. We'll all see beauty as something different, but how an aesthetic in our lived environment completely affects how we're gonna treat it, the quality, but likewise, does this room actually work? You know, d is it big enough for me? Are the windows large enough? Is it light enough? Does it get too cold in the winter? They're fundamental too. So I, I don't really see it as a black and white kind of uh, a setting up of that, you know. And of course, a lot of the space standards from that period are there. There are much bigger spaces than private housing. And just, just before we pass over here, I just wanted to say one of the things, one of my bugbears is quite often um, security 
doors are retrofitted to post-war housing and they look very forbidding and i think it just sets a tone for you know it's quite depressing seeing these like prison-like uh, doors surrounded by barbed wire i think that you know it does it sends a message out there okay i think there's somebody around here who wanted to speak raise your hand Hello, I'm Eddie. Oh, hello. I, I um, live in a, a state called Dawson's Heights in South London. And um, I think there's something quite interesting about this tension between, uh, if you like, efficiency and uh, discretionary effort. Um, because I think, certainly in my lived experience of, of being there, it's, it's that those discretionary efforts that actually um, really make it special. Um, you could call that experimentation. Um, you could call that just being um, progressive and, and bold on behalf of the architect, but you know the fact that it was. Can you explain what you mean by yeah, discretionary efforts? So, yeah. so I mean whether it's it can be really small details like using bullnose bricks to sort of soften your interaction with the the handrails on the walkway. So it's a deck access um, social housing estate. It's one of the biggest in London. Um, almost certainly an inspiration for the book. I will forget the name of that. Aidan and Ross will be able to fill in. Um, um, that demonise social housing. Uh, yes, yeah, exactly. So Alice Common was a geography teacher, still lives in Dulwich at the ripe old age of 92, um, and will have surveyed that as the largest social housing estate in Southwark at the time, amongst the, I think, 5,000 she claimed to have, have researched. And um, But um, it's, it's set in, so there's 14 acres of, of grounds it's set in, um, there's 296 flats, so it's very dense, it rises to 12 stories, but it, it challenges a lot of those um, uh, things that could have been efficiencies. So um, uh, all the residents have got balconies because um, the architect Kate McIntosh forced that through um, on the basis of fire regs. Um, and um, she managed to stop it being built from, it was gonna be system built like the Haygate um, and was able to force them using um, handmade bricks. Um, the views are the things that sort of mediate the interaction between tenants and and indeed um, anyone. So it's it's where you'll spark up a conversation with a postie or um, you know whoever comes to visit, um, and that sort of softens the interaction and, and creates that um, sense of community and public space. Um, but I think there's a risk quite often of um, being binary around these debates, and sometimes the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. Um, you know sometimes deck access can be done really badly um, sometimes it can work really well sometimes um, you know it's not worth investing in certain details in certain contexts um, sometimes a project you mentioned Robin Hood Gardens you know I think um, the site of that if you transplanted that somewhere else if you put that on a hill in East Dulwich I suspect it would have functioned somewhat differently in the same way that if the building I live in um, you know wasn't on a hill in East Dulwich um, it might not function so well if it was, you know, essentially a, a roundabout in, you know, just off the A, is it 13? Um, 12. So 12. A12, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's complex, right? There's a, I think I'm right. Yeah, there's a kind of complex interaction here between um, design, I mean, I mean, I think the counterpoint to that is that some people might residence. say Dawson's Heights is quite inaccessible where it is and... Um, yeah, you're kind of out of things where you are. Do you feel that when you're there? Does it feel kind of self-contained? And I think there's there's something to be said for living just out of the city and looking back at it, um, because um, you know you can actually see see the view, and it's quite nice to kind of um, have that distance. And um, you know, you see it every day. It's you sort of 
it's quite it's an odd experience as a Londoner being able to see most of London when you go to bed and um, when you wake up in the morning and um, I quite enjoy that it feels feels like a sort of um, I can't think of the term but like like the Iliad you know when you're sort of setting off on a sort of voyage each day into the office in the city that's nice so question inspiration uh, yeah, me quickly and Oh, I'm not sure if it's quick. I was going to try and tie a couple of things. Oh, that's um, good. Please together. do, because I failed at doing that. So, <laughs> okay, so I think in terms of um, uh, design, I think just picking up some some of the things that um, design is not only about how things look, but how it um, works. And now this is changing, but just looking back at the question about how we get closer to a pioneering sense of purpose. And I think for a long time there's been this transactional relationship between um, landlords and residents. I think it's important for us to go back to kind of the uh, missions and visions of social housing. The housing association that I sit on the board for, we've been looking at our new corporate plan and we've had some really interesting conversations in the context of hyperinflation, rising cost of living, and what that means for our residents, but also what that means for the organization in terms of our development plans and what we deliver, are the services. Um, the Housing Association um, is a specialist housing association providing services for women, um, single women. Our elevator um, pitch is about providing a springboard for um, independent women to achieve their potential and also that since 1920, our mission has been to cater for the housing requirements of professionals and other women of moderate means um, who require distinctive individual homes at moderate rents. The two key things there for me are springboard and moderate means. So when we talk about um, being a springboard, social housing, affordable housing, I think that still rings true today. But does the system still enable people to use social housing as a springboard to improve their circumstances and then move on to more independence, not only in housing terms, in terms of home ownership or private rent, but also in terms of their personal um, achievement and fulfillment in their um, relationships, in the social context. Um, so we considered the type of housing products we were delivering and how that might be diversified. So we could offer more um, different products, including home ownership, intermediate options. Um, and we also looked at the future of our stock and ensuring that we're building homes that cater for things like older living. We considered the care and support services that we provide and whether that could be improved and how we can work with other organisations to um, diversify our offer, allowing residents to learn new skills, start their own businesses, interact um, and engage in, with different services. With that included um, campaigning for women's needs, housing needs. Crucial to it all is being resident-led. So again, I'm going back to people and being resident-led. Um, and really working in partnership with residents and having a culture that enables a level of confidence to allow us to achieve that. The next thing to touch on is moderate means. And for me, this is really important because it's still um, important that we challenge the concept of social housing as being characterized by only people that are out of work or at rock bottom. 
So social housing, affordable housing, is not just for the those that are struggling in society. A lot of that's come from lack of supply, I suppose, as well. Absolutely. So I think we need to continue to chip away at that singular perspective of who this housing is, is for. So yes, it is there to support those that are disadvantaged in society. But interestingly, half of our um, residents in the social association pay their rents without benefits or universal credits, and the rest are either kind of partially funded or fully funded. Um, so there are many people we're talking, talking about who are working but of moderate means, and they require kind of that, that assistance. So I think we, we need to change the perception and really take it back to, to people and ensuring that we're providing services for the wider group of people to really be able to thrive yeah. and prosper. Say so when I lived in social housing as well, the diversity of tenants was quite extraordinary and really interesting mix of people from all different types of background and that was very enriching because it was it felt like you were meeting people you'd never meet normally from all sorts of different areas of life it was very fascinating right sorry you have something to say um i don't want to be like too antagonistic with this but um and apologies if i missed any hands but um given that there's no one uh, who is a socially rented tenant in the room and or is voicing from that lived experience how productive and how um <laughs> you know how is is there really a voice missing in this room and is it um you know is it is there some kind of is it a bit problematic to be intellectualizing uh estates where people are going through real hardship not everybody but when their voices aren't being represented good point yes thank you does anybody have a response to that hello karen thank you be a short pause hello um so i grew up in a council house uh, my mother i was born in it and my mum still lives in it to this day my first flat i bought in london thanks to the bank of northern rock and 100 percent mortgages was an ex-council house um and then i sold it and moved out um so i do have experience and i still have lived experience today because i go back and see my mum all the time and i still sleep in the bedroom that i slept in when my dad put a fake wall up because it happened to have two windows so me and my brother could have a room each, which was very useful. Um, it's a row of houses, it's a lot of houses, and I think there's some really interesting comments tonight. I think some of the comments are about how you look in. A lot of these things are designed inward looking rather than outward looking, and I think that is a big issue. People walk through the estate, they go into the estate, they let their dogs shit on the pathways, they then walk out, and then my mum has to go back and go, you've left something behind. Um, and she does do that. You know, there is rubbish left two days before Christmas. There was two metres of rubbish on a gable end because what's everyone doing? They're all getting rid of the shit just so they can bring some new shit in. And it's a constant, we have wheelie bins. Where do you put your wheelie bins? They weren't designed for wheelie bins. Everyone likes to have three cars. We're no, oh shit, we don't have room for three cars. We have a thing that we used to grow up, we, 
I played on called the Monkey Park. It was a concrete thing, okay? The grass had signs on that said, do not play on the grass. Don't kick balls on the wall, but we were allowed to play on the Monkey Park. That is now left to grass. It's now been grassed over by, because no one's maintained it. It's, but then you've got these really interesting people who live there, who are brilliant. We all come from there, we all live there, and it's great. And you've got my mum, who's lived there since it was built. You've got new next door neighbours, great Italian couple. The people who lived on the other side of my mum, it's pretty horrendous. Five dogs, a lot of people, a lot of shit, a lot of mediation, a lot of issues. A Slovakian couple at the other end. Niger, you know, my mum is like, oh God, we've got a load of new people. They're amazing. This man built me a fence. They have a sense of community. So it's really interesting when you come from a sort of working class white area, the immigration is seen as a really positive thing because they have a different sensibility of what these houses are and how you use them and what you create from them. And so they are amazing places that people I grew up on and it gave me a home. My grand moved into a council house, she had no toilet, right? So they, that was like, this is fucking great. I've got a toilet, I've got one inside and one outside. So it's a very different story to what you're talking people. Thank you, Karen. Not Steve? Design. Yeah. <laughs> Karen, I've I'm heard cutting you off, Karen. Karen, sorry, I heard it all before. Yeah, it's very relevant, though, <laughs> to the room because no one's lived it. Like, no, you can't no, talk I, about I, shit. I, I lived in a council house, um, a council flat, and then a council house um, up until um, became middle class around about early teens. Um, anyway, I'm not going to bore you with that story. I want to get back to your point because. Um, I disagree. I think uh, we set up a forum here in the Groney Talks. Yes, sometimes it might be a, akin to an echo chamber, but having been experienced in what Karen's just described and seen that before, me and Karen have a, enjoy a lot of chats about those kind of things from the past. wasn't the same estate, but the same kind of condition, same kind of upbringing. And um, I feel really privileged to be in a room where I've got people like you know, Root and Charlotte and, 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 and Albert and others that, that kind of inspire conversation that takes it further. I enjoy the debate. I think everyone should enjoy the debate. And that's what we try and do here. I mean, we're, we're, we've been working on a, a, a talk series with Karen about where is the working class architect, because there aren't many. Where is architect, by the way. That's a very short. That's a very short series, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very short. Um, Steve's uh, but, not but, an architect. But going back to the point, I, I, I just think it's yes, there should be people in the room who have got that experience for sure. Yes, there should be people in the room that might add to the conversation and so on. But quite often, and Yemi, I'm sure, will vouch for this, is that you're dealing with a, a, a really difficult population that don't want to get involved quite often. So the, 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 the education, the skills training, the awareness that experts or others can bring becomes so damn useful. Good point. I would like to say that when I started to work with architects, I then went back home and looked at where I lived because I didn't do that until I worked. And then I realized that all of our houses were just two slabs of concrete with bits of... Yeah wood in between well i did the same I was, I was brought up on a suburban housing estate in leamington spa they do exist there uh, and i just discovered a few years ago it was designed by mr gibbard so um yeah i had no idea at the time that it was special so sorry charlotte would you like to just, i think 
possibly why some people from this demographic that we're talking about aren't in the room is potentially because life is too shit and too busy to have the space to think about some of these things that we have a privileged time and money to to attend to so i think it's a very it's an incredibly complicated issue this so if you are dealing on if you're really in the shit (laughs) of not being able to earn pay exist in london you are not thinking about your built environment potentially or having that space and time i'm not but you're no. entirely capable of course you are so the question for you and uh, both of you over there is in, in terms of participation in that case when you make your film when you made your film and when you're doing tours we've touched on it with you already is how do you make sure you're getting that representation i mean i don't know how diverse the uh, population is where you live but um be interesting to know how you kind of create that engagement Somebody grab a microphone. Someone grab a microphone. Is it on? Um, uh, so, a bit closer. Okay. Um, so it's it's that, I mean it's it's really really difficult to achieve, and we don't achieve it on all the you know w- we look at a sort of wide variety of um, uh, different examples of uh, council housing, and it, we haven't managed to make contact with residents in all of them. I mean sometimes it's just if you you know walk around somewhere enough someone talks to you and 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 that's a way in the other thing is open city have a crazy address book of you know people who you can get in 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 touch with um so it's something that we you know we're really striving to incorporate and 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 you know totally uh you know it really makes a whole lot of difference actually i mean it it, is massive the difference it makes but it's not always easy and and as you say like you know people are just getting on with their lives you know it's it's their home you know great you like my house cool i've I, you know i've got the rest of my day to get on with um so so it, you know it, it's a it, it's a it's a balance really um because we, you know we we see the importance in talking about these places and obviously the residents perspective you know is is vital it's otherwise you're only getting half the story you're, you're just looking at something you, you know do you consciously pick good examples or do you also try and show people sort of dystopian failures almost and um well, I suppose if you're if you're doing a uh, you know a walk or a cycle, you're moving through the city, so you go you pass different examples. And I think one of the things that I find slightly problematic is this link between sort of council housing. I mean, we should just call it housing, but we're talking about council housing and sort of um, brutalism. You know, that that's just one period actually. Like you know, housing provision. You know, go, there are examples from the early 1900s. You know, quite and 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 that's a totally different offering. You know, these they're beautiful kind of arts and crafts buildings that are. You know, their their whole aspiration is to ha- house people, but house them kind of beautifully. Um, so actually, the the story of of um, council housing over the past what are we now? I don't know, 100, 120 years. You know, is is really varied. So we try and include different examples, um, so that you kind of you you get that spectrum. And I think what stands out is something you know, Eddie. I think was sort of starting to touch on in terms of quality. You know, the the examples. You know, we include a whole load of different examples, but I think what I've really picked up on over the years, looking at looking at them, is actually the ones that are successful, of, and and they do it in a in a whole you know variety of ways, but actually just really contextual responses. They're very site specific, you know, thinking about you know their locality, what they're responding to, what the need of the time is, and that's not you know that's not a generic thing. That's not kind of a broad sweep of council housing. They're really quite you know, specific and considered responses to a, to a problem. Yeah, there's a argument, isn't a lot of very system-built, panel-built, contractor-led 
post-war housing that you know deemed failures and you know, Rodan Point style sort of thing. Um, I did want to ask as well. There is like one thing that we seem to sort of talk on is that there's this sort of sense of optimism and kind of hope for the future with a lot of these housing schemes. As you said, with the um, you know the early 20th century ones as well as uh, that sort of real sort of positive sense that lives can be improved, uh, not wanting to sound patrician about it. But I'm just wondering, how do we get a sense of that excitement and optimism back into social housing? And how do we, you know, how, how do we get architects enthused by it? Because at the moment, it seems to be still quite a niche proposition. Uh, can I? Funding, okay. Uh, okay, that's the end of that question. Uh, has anybody got any other thoughts? I think um, Woodbury Down is a really good example of this that has been rebuilt. So at the, when it was first done, it was pretty bad so as as in when Barclay Homes came to take it on and then they advertised it as being you know 20 minutes from Nobu and then Hackney reinvigorated basically snatched it back and they put a community centre at the heart of that that is really really well managed they have digital nomads who go out into people's homes and get them online you know they they have things for women who want to get back to work they have and that it, and what they did, they realised that they needed to get people in and not keep people out. Because initially it was designed as a gated community with social housing over there and the nice houses over here and never the twain shall meet. And it was like a real, because it's around the reservoirs. And so that community space, the Woodbury Down Community Centre, that's run by Simon Davenport, if you don't know him, I would definitely go and see what he does, is phenomenal. It's, it's really, really good. And their ability to get people, what we were saying before about getting people into the space, into the heart of that place and getting them to interact in many different ways. Like anybody can be a digital nomad for the community that is in there. So a lot they have, again, they have the um, businesses. So they have a florist in there who came from the flats. They have a bike repair shop where uh, young, young, a lot of the young males will go and learn how to repair bikes and now they have a, they have their own business. So there's lots of ways in which community housing or social housing council, whatever, that's very mixed and integrated, can be good. And that's also really good. That's like a good comprehensive. You know, you want integration, you want mix because you have then aspirations. You see other people and you think, well, why the fuck can't I have that? If I do the same as them, if I go to work every day and I do the same fucking thing, that should be accessible to me. And so you need mix, you need integration. And that I think is really important. And these yeah. conversations, how do you get them to look at their environment? How do you get people to say, actually, I want better? Yeah. And that's I'll part word I'm obsessed about, ownership. Ownership doesn't necessarily mean financial ownership of a private property. You know, ownership of that space and agency within it, within my co-op, which is very mixed. So though it, we don't means test people when they move in. So some people are on benefits, some people are finding t life incredibly tough, and some people are actually quite privileged there. And I think, but there is a sense of, um, there is a sense of this notion of them and us. So it's not they are going to come and sort this out. They are going to work out how we want to change this building. It's we, us. And I think those, again, are semantics, but it's really important. Well, there's a the thing about security of 
tenure as well, I suppose. Yeah, and there is, the fact, you know, the things have, like the bedroom tax would have left lots we of have people life feeling very insecure. So, and, yeah. um, Rita, I just want to ask you, because as a photographer, I want to talk about photography. Um, <laughs> in terms of how we, how we make images of social housing... Uh, so, you know, we have this situation at the moment where most, you know, we, we're all looking at Instagram and flicking through and seeing all these abstracted views of beautiful bits of concrete. Um, and back in the 70s, the magazines like the Architecture Review um, had their Man Plan series, uh, which was very much a documentary approach. People like Tony Ray Jones going into estates and photographing them as, as lived experiences, uh, you know, really embedding themselves in communities. And I was wondering how you see the state of photography and estates and, and, and your practice and how that can influence our perceptions and also inform, uh, you know, when it comes to experimentation and people getting ideas, how that can inform uh, that sort of architectural process, do you think? Uh, I mean, I, I big question. Big question, very difficult to answer. Good. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to suggest. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think every artist approaches it from their own perspective and from their own desire what they want to represent. But I think what you suggested about uh, uh, civic crown, about the landscape, about what happens on the crown is really important and uh, also in terms of design and how we think about that. But to come back to photography, well, I'm interested in that which is perhaps overlooked, which is marginal, which is perhaps not so attractive. But photography, of course, is, a, is an exercise in transformation. And with a photograph, you can make anything look good. And that process of suggesting something else is where I would see the art and I'm personally not interested in photographing people. I don't want, you know, I feel that's too intrusive. That's not what I want to do. And I think there's also uh, something to be said about a certain kind of indifference. Why it can work? Because we are actually indifferent to each other. We let everyone else get on with it. We, we don't want to get too close. That's why cities work. So maybe that is also a form of respect so that's how i approach it keep you know the overview but keep don't get perhaps too close so slightly more of a distant kind of yeah. view in the race perspective does anybody else have any interest or experience or see photography that they like and uh, in this sort of area no okay that was a bad question wasn't it <laughs> let's move back to architecture then in that case <laughs> um so does anybody else have any input onto i mean uh, what about examples of social housing i mean there is more coming on stream at the moment isn't there pete barber mainly uh, but other people as well um there's a few more yeah 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 uh, i did have a look recently and i did think a lot of them look very much well they, they were, uh, I, my own personal sort of aesthetic observation was that lots of them were very samey is that i'm just going to say throw that one out there as a are we seeing any, that level? Are we seeing any kind of, you know, well, I know you don't want the experimentation, but are we seeing it at all? Are we playing it too safe, even if we're not, we're not experimenting? We, yeah, I know you don't want to over-experiment, but are we playing it too safe? <laughs> Hello. Um. 
Otherwise, I'll pass this one over. It's live. Hi. Um, I don't I mean there's definitely a lot less experimentation going on now than perhaps there was in the 60s, and I don't think that's a bad thing. There's a lot of chat about how bad London vernacular is and how boring it is, and I think it is boring when it gets completely copied in its pattern book, but I think that there's nothing wrong with a good standard of ordinary for ordinary housing, and I think... You know, maybe the conversation should be shaped in the other way. It's like, if we want experimental avant-garde housing, why aren't we doing it in the private sector where people have got the money to pay for it? We can, they can have the budgets to maintain it. Why are we seeing, why are we having this conversation about social housing and not about private housing? We should be striving, I think it's what Yemi was saying, we should be striving for it to be a quality housing and it's quality in all aspects in terms of it needs to be safe as we've talked about it needs to be warm it needs to keep people's bills down and it needs to be long lasting and it needs you know and katie's gonna chip in i've got a comment um here we go, here we go. um <laughs> so i guess the argument with avant-garde and experimentation and obviously there was a lot of that post-war but none of that's been maintained and it is a is there a question of it was too expensive to maintain? It was too it was too avant-garde to maintain. And so, you know, if we're gonna do avant-garde housing now, is it then just not gonna be maintained by councils again? And the people are gonna live in these sort of homes, these more failed homes because they're not being maintained. Question. But they will be the future Instagram projects. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, my name's Claire Benny. Hello. Um, I used to be development director at Peabody, who are looking after 160 years of worth of different buildings. They started off completely standard in Victorian times, same building everywhere. So I think you can do the same building everywhere, and it can be fine. And they were all decried as prisons in their day, and then now they're all conservation areas. So also our opinions can completely change over time. Um, just quickly, they had Victorian Edwardian 30s. They didn't have any post-war because they were repairing their old stock. And my God, they were glad about that. Um, they did some sort of slightly crap stuff from the 80s onwards. Um, then they bought Thamesmead. Um, and of course, that was kind of the craziest. That was the, probably the tail end of all the slightly mad 60s stuff. Um, and there's a famous book about it, which was written, which basically says that the first flat, the family moved in, and it leaked on day one. There was rain coming in from the very, very start. So I think all the angles and complexity of the concrete and so on made it cold and damp and made it leak. And it basically was really struggling from the start for all kinds of reasons. Um, but there's a lot of romanticism around Thamesmead for reasons we all know about. And actually retrofitting it, well, they tried on a couple of the houses and they cost the same as as rebuilding and so that kind of ha that retrofit has to be done by the private sector in my view and it's fine and people love those buildings and they want to retrofit them but i think it's not right for public money to be spent on it um just a final one i think how do we get nicer social housing now 
it's the clients, it's the people who work at the council's project managing um, and the people who work at the HA's project managing. My whole business and my life is spent encouraging them to do more interesting things, but it's very, very difficult because of the funding they receive and the targets they're set and so forth. And that's why a lot of it is rather risk-averse and boring. Definitely. I mean, I kind of left Peabody just when they were getting cracking on it, and but I know that the residents get extremely cross about all of the sort of perceptions of it. Um, and th there was a classic moment with, you know, somebody, a big landlord like Peabody, where they're like, shall we cha change the name of Thamesmead? And then it was like, absolutely not. Um, so it, I think it sort of helps and hinders, um, but... Yes, it would be very difficult to do Thamesmead again. Thamesmead, interestingly, was Hook Newtown, completely transplanted to the east of London. It's not designed for context. If anyone thinks that funky concrete stuff is all about context, it absolutely isn't. Just to touch on the point Claire raised about um, clients and a point you made earlier about how we can um, get architects more enthused uh, about um, housing. I don't think there is a shortage of um, architects that are interested in housing. And I think over the last five to ten years, we've seen with, with their actually architects following money or profession following the money, mm. and then being a little bit more money in local authorities building again. I think that you have got the architects there that want to do the work. I think the question is um, that actually how many of them are prepared for the slog. And I was catching up with Paul to the back there earlier this morning and we were just talking about just how hard housing is to do right and to do well and to deal with residents and to deal with clients like myself coming and saying don't have the money for this, we can't do that, we can't do that, we've got to follow this process and jump through this hoop. Actually are architects willing to do the hard work in order to deliver on their visions and also realise that there might have to be a middle ground there. So I think that, that's, that's, a, that's a big I think that's a great place to finish. Are we time to finish now? I don't know how we've... I've not been keeping track, so... so do, okay, so I just wanted to thank everybody's part. Oh, we've got one more. Do you want to do... Come on in. Come on in. Um, ladies, point at the, uh, the beginning um, when you said I'm being an antagonist. I don't think you are. I think it's something we should be talking about. And for me, like, I'm not from the architecture industry. I live in Newham in East London. The borough has about 30,000 people waiting on social housing list. And I think, the f Ooh, sorry. Um, yeah, it's just, I'm not trying, I don't think it's negative. I think we should talk more about it. And the fact that it's only been a five minute segment of a talk is quite disheartening. Um, and I, yeah, I don't think it's negative. I think we should be more active and then we shouldn't think it's difficult to reach people, which should be, what are we actively going to do? And with this talk, I was, I was just thinking of myself, like I, I'm from the creative industry, so I searched, you know, and that's how I got involved in this. But for people I've lived with, um, people I know from my era, some grew up in social housing, they wouldn't have been exposed to anything like this. I don't think we should think they're too difficult to reach. It's what can we actively do? And if you think that's not important, then I don't know, I just I find it a bit bemusing that we're, 
we're talking about glamorizing. I'm not saying what we all are, but there's a tension between glamorizing, but actually asking people, what is your lived experience? And for example, in my borough, a lot of people don't actually have English as the first language. You know, what are we actively doing to maybe make things more accessible? So, yeah, make, you can think I'm being negative, but I think we no, should I have those conversations. I think that's a really, really good point to finish on as well. I appreciate like open city, go open house a lot. And I think that's what we need to do, collaborate yeah. more on co-design rather than thinking, oh, it's too difficult. That's for me personally, for someone yeah, who's li who lives in a deprived borough, that's really disheartening to hear people say things like that. Mm. They're a lot, sorry, just to come back on that. Whilst I, no, um, no, yeah. I, I absolutely Day get, three. get that, yeah. I absolutely get the point, and I, maybe we haven't talked, um, touched on it in great detail to, today, but there are lots of organisations no. doing um, lots of fantastic things, including, I think I mentioned that the Housing Association I sit on the board for. Actually, we've got residents that also sit on the board with us, so the residents are part of the decision-making processes. So things are not done to them, but are done with them. So I think that that's one very important point um, to, to mention. And I guess um, in terms of engagement, I, can, I, I struggle with it sometimes times because I think it again it's the very minimum of what we should be doing and I think at the beginning I did touch on the importance of co-creating and co-authoring and kind of doing things together rather than just engaging with with people so I think that's probably a call to action for a whole nother um, Negroni talk yeah. Yeah. No, I was gonna say Thank sorry you, last last bit I really appreciate it and I think that's what we need to hear like what is actually being done and because then people would be more interested to come to the events when they are actually being involved in the conversation rather than, you know, this is how good living is. But we all have different perceptions of what good living is. Obviously, there's a standard yeah. of what's great, but, you know, wh wherever you're from kind of in spot determines what your perception is, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, sure. So, Thank sorry. you for that. And I think, I mean, from my own perspective of photography, uh, it has become much more difficult to really go in and embed yourself. And documentary photography is kind of... I would argue this is a whole other talk, just declining art, but, um, you know, it's much easier to take a superficial view. And I think, you know, we don't have the, the kind of funding available anymore for people to really go in and embed themselves or be part of community and for people to have those opportunities. Anyway, let me thank everybody who's participated tonight. Thank you to the members of the audience who spoke. And then we're going to go around the speakers in turn. Everybody give us a little wave. Do a little clap. Do we do a clap? We do the clap. We're going to give them the clap. It's Yemi. Give us a wave, Yemi. Root. There she is over there. Albert. Thank you, Albert. Sorry, you haven't spoken for a while. Rosalind over in the far corner. And Charlotte. Thank you, Charlotte. I'm, I, I just wanted to say uh, I'm Gareth, and um, do come and visit my gallery. <laughs> It's not a commercial gallery. It's a labour of love, and we only show photography of architecture in place. Uh, and um, it's good fun. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's tiny. Don't get your hopes up too much. Uh, but it's well worth a visit and come and explore the social housing in Deptford as well. It's worth looking at. Thank you. Thank you very much. Steve. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.